This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. Great to see you folks here today. You know, and, and what I'm thinking about today is, is you know, what's, what is the significance of what we do here? And, and what's the significance of having wonderful people like Frank Nick come in and share? And I think it's this. As I said last week, you know, we're all imbued in our soul with the better angels of our nature, compassion, hope, joy, love, all of those pieces that tether us to heaven. And we live in a world of, of oftentimes disguises where we, where we fall away from that. And how is it that we find a return? How is it that, that, that we get reminded of the things, ready for this, of the things that we actually already know? Those deep parts of our soul. And in times like this, that's so important. Honoring the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King, incredibly important for churches to do. His legacy still lives and breathes with, with us today. And it's important to understand how critical that message is. That message is always important. I'd love to say now more important than ever. I don't know whether that's true, but I do know it's very important. You look at all that's happened in our, in our world over the past few months around terrorism, and, and we're being invited into a certain kind of, of, of world, and do we want to be invited there, or do we want to reinvite ourselves back into those better angels of our nature? I think that's what we want to be thinking about today celebrating as a church today. Now, to introduce Frank, Frank's life goes way back to the streets of Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, I've enjoyed, if you want to look at Frank, look at his tattoos then, and then take a look at his tattoos back in the day. You know, that was Frank when he was a member of the Skinheads. And Frank's life took a lot of twists and turns, which he talked about last time he was with us. Twists and turns that have made him one of the leading spokespeople on nonviolence in the country today. I've not only enjoyed getting to know Frank in terms of hearing him, but, but actually I would consider him a very good friend these days. And with that, it gives me great honor and great privilege to introduce your speaker for today, Mr. Frank Mayer. Uh, well, first off, I know I chose 
born on the in Southwest Philadelphia. That's where my dad is from. I grew up around that way until I was about three, up on Woodland Avenue. And uh, they struggled with alcohol. So my mom moves back to her neighborhood down in South Philly with me in tow, and I told that story here before. I keep getting it feedback. Am I doing something wrong? So my mom brings me back to this neighborhood where it's mostly all Irish, and I had this Italian last name because my dad was Italian. Bernalini. Frank Bernalini. So, uh, you know, I go back into the South Philly neighborhood and I got this Italian last name, and they, eventually they, my family takes away from me and gives me my mom's maiden name, which was Mink. So I wasn't Italian anymore in their eyes, right? That, that negates that I was ever Italian because they, a lot of people always call me a Dago. So, my mom gets remarried to a guy, and uh, he was not very nice to me. This was not, and it changed my world. You know, me and my mom were together forever. It was just me and her for a long, long time. You know, she had some boyfriends here and there, and this guy changed everything. But I remember as a kid, I was not embarrassed of my home situation, but I definitely, there was times, and, you know, being on food stamps, and I know some of you in here are probably going through that in your younger years, maybe even now, where you get the little EPT credit card, you know, no one even knows now. You get ready to swipe that thing, but when you get food stamps, if you remember, the law was you had to rip it out of the book in front of the attendant, like at the store. So you couldn't just come out here and throw some food stamps. You had to like take the book out, rip it, hand it to the guy. Food coupon, something right? Neon card. Look at me. Poorest kid in the neighborhood. And I remember being embarrassed about that. I remember my mom and even my dad might go see him once a while. They sent me to the store as a kid, and I said, please give me green money. Please give me green, real money, please, you know? And they would say, nope, that's for bills. This is for food. So, embarrassed in the time of my situation. When my stepfather came into my life, I was always punished, I was always grounded, I was always getting smacked around. So I would go to school, I started to act up. I was that kid, you know, who fought with the teachers. And the year before, or two years before then, I wasn't, I was the good kid. I mean, I didn't do my homework, and I didn't, you know, I didn't get good grades, but I was a good kid, all my teachers loved me, you know, I was always the one they always asked to help. So, now I'm fighting at school, and I'm getting in trouble, and getting kicked out of school, and I find eventually my stepfather, and my mom, but my stepfather first, he, uh, I came home from being kicked out of school one day, and I'll tell you that I really did used to wish I had to buy a car. Fourth Street, down in South Philly, 4th Street was the last street that I would have to go to to get home. And that was the street I always predicted or planned to get hit by a car. Because I, I mean, again, in South Philly, everyone gets hit by cars, right? You know, I mean, these are little, small, narrow streets, and it's always like your cousins that run you over, right? You don't know. <laughs> we were all related down there, trust me, that's my grandma. So I'd always plan myself to get hit by a car so I wouldn't have to go home. Because I know I'm not going to die and I know that I can just go to the hospital for a day and I won't have to go home. Because I hated home so much. I hated it. Everything that happened, I was telling Pastor about this last night, just a good example of, of what it was like with sometimes with my stepdad. And again, we just didn't get along. We just did not like each other. And, and he asked me one day, he said, you know how to read a tape measure? 
I said, of course, you know, I know. Inches, foot, yeah, no, I'm not reading tape measure. He goes, oh yeah, well here's my tape measure. Tell me what five and five sixteenths is. I'm that's because you're a dumb da 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 You're stupid, you know? And I'm like, why don't you teach me? Teach me what life is. I don't know. But he never did that, and that's the way it was. So I'm moving with my dad up in Southwest Philly, and you guys, Southwest, West Philly, you know, there's Fresh Prince's area, you know, born and raised on the playground, spent most of my days chilling out, maxing with accidents, shooting some b-ball out by the schoolyard. <laughs> you know, a couple guys up to no good, started making trouble in my neighborhood. You know. Yo, that's my dad's neighborhood. Everyone in trouble. So, my dad doesn't have much to do with me, even when I'm living with him. I was never really part of my dad's plan in life. I knew that. Yeah, I, I always knew that. And I'm not trying to sound like I want to be, but I knew that. I was a mistake by him and my mom. He was her dealer, and he always told me, he even joked with me when I was a kid, he's like, I should have just fronted her, fronted her at that age. Well, Put me in a school called Pepper Middle School where I'm drawing with black kids every day. It's an almost all black school. I'm one of the new I'm a new kid in school in April. I couldn't know it was you know, around that April first or something moved into that area. So I'm the new kid, so I'm already out. I'm a skateboarder white kid at almost all black school. Which sometimes did save me because some of the black kids thought of me as the devil boy because I like the teardrop hair. I mean I had no I was a skater and then I, you know the late 80s, early 90s skater kid I had but I'm also a star athlete, and I've always been an athlete. So I make all the sports teams in this all-black school, and I'm like the captain of our ball team. So I'm making some friends do that, obviously, but it didn't save me all the time. I mean, I was fist fighting a lot in that school. And one day I walked into the restrooms in the Pepper, and in Pepper they'd taken all the, the doors off the crackers and the boys' rooms, you know, because everyone would cut class and smoke cigarettes in there, graffiti, so they just took the doors off the crackers. So if you were a boy and you had to drop the deuce, you didn't do it at school, you know what I mean? You walk around all cramped up all day, but yo, I'll wait till I get home. Because you're very vulnerable in that situation, you know? You come in, you're sitting there in front of everybody, you know? Where do you wait till after school? That's what I would do. Well, I walked in there at the end of the day when I had baseball practice that day, so I go into the bathroom and these three black kids come out. And I know Steve to this day, the bigger black kid. I know him, I just seen him about six months ago. So Steve comes out, and he's big, like I said, he's a bigger black kid, and he's on the ball team with me, and he has his uniform on, I have my uniform on, and I, as I walk in, these two other black kids came out. And one said, here we go, we got another one. By that time, I walked in far enough, I could see they had a white kid that I took the trolley with. And they were humiliating and going through his pockets and just eating on him in the bathroom stall. That white kid gave me this look that I'll never forget for my whole life. Never, I think about it all the time, I'm thinking about it right now. It was this, thank God you're here. You're going to help me, type of book. And Steve turned to me and said, Frank, you're cool, right? And I said, yeah, I'm cool, man. Meaning like I'm not going to go rat on them for robbing. And I did. I left that kid there. And I know him to this day, too. I know the white kid. I think about him all the time, you know? Especially back then, I thought about him every day. I never went back to that school ever again. Never, not once. I cut the last 49 days of school or something. I was a D student at best, and they still graduated. Missed the last 40 days of school. Philadelphia School District. All right, see ya. Made the high school. So that summer, my dad says, do whatever you want, son. I don't give a crap. 
so I'm gonna go do whatever I want. So I went to go up to Lancaster, or Lancaster. I was just in this talk in North Dakota a couple, about a month ago, and I said Lancaster, and this woman goes, it's Lancaster. I said, look, chick, I could say Maniunk and Schuylkill. I think it's okay if I say Lancaster, right? Put her in her place. Lancaster. My cousins lived up there. They were from South Philly originally. My uncle would move them out of the city, you know, that type of deal. And they lived on this four-mile-long road, all gravel road. And I brought my skateboard up. I can't skateboard on the gravel road. But my cousin had a half plate. Couldn't wait to go. He's from punk rock. My cousin's like the older cousin of punk rock, spitting straight in the air, spitting boogies, and, you know, just straight punk rock. Eggshells in his hair. That's how the old punk rockers used to hold their hair up, you know, just with the eggs. Cracked eggs up in their hair, hold it up for days. <laughs> Elmer's blue. And they had the hair broad like today, you know. But that's how come it was like blue, you know, it was like green and purple, but he didn't even dye colors. He just turned color, he didn't hairball, right? <laughs> That's real punk rock. <laughs> so I go up there, and they're the only normal family on this gravel road. The only normal people. Everybody else is Amish. Like, real Amish. Like, I always, I mean, like, I've seen them turning butter before. Like, are you kidding me? Like, they turn butter, and they ain't doing it for my reenactment. Like, hey, Frank, watch this is how we used to live. That's how they really live. <laughs> Horse and buggies and stuff like and it, I loved it up there. It was like being in a National Geographic documentary. You know what I mean? So cows and pigs and chickens running around. No pigeons. They didn't have pigeons up there. So my cousin comes home. He wasn't home yet. I go up into his room and get a swastika flag and a Confederate flag. I kind of know a little bit what the swastika flag meant. Better if I knew something about the South, wasn't sure. I'm a 13 year old, 14 year old kid. My cousin comes home and he had all these newspaper articles about skinheads. So I'm reading them before he comes home and he comes home and his thing is shaved off and he has a bald head and nicely cropped pants with these really nice Doc Martin boots now. Not punk rock looking to, to say, but still looks different. But he starts telling me about how he's a skinhead. That night, all these other skinheads will come over to his house and they climb up the balcony because they had a balcony. They'd all come up on this balcony and they all come sneak in every, late at night. They always bring beer and girls. They drove, they had tattoos. Dude, you're cool. And they'd always hand me a beer. I'm a little guy. I'm a little skater kid hanging out with all these skinheads. And they always hand me a beer and all the older skinheads. My cousin always makes sure to say, you know, my cousin lives down in like Southwest, West Philly, like the really rough parts. And see, these guys, they all hated black people. And they could say the N-word and all that. But they didn't even see black people. Amish people, there's no black Amish people. They're just not. The Sofuses don't are not black. And this girl one time, she's standing above me. She was like the queen bee of the skinhead girls group. And she was, she was mean. She was really mean. She was cute. <laughs> Stood above me one time in front of everyone trying to her male make her dominance. So she's So you're going to tell me you take the bus for black people. I said, yeah, check every day. I got the bell train too, you know what I mean? I'm damn, living in a city of two million people, most of them are black. Yeah, I take the bus for black people. Like they couldn't fathom that. But they can fathom living next to the Amish people. Right? Like this, 
And that's where I was like, wow, so these guys would always ask me, like, so really it's like this, and you hear gunshots, and you see this, and I see a kid get shot outside my skateboarding bike, so I was telling them that story, and they were like, wow, and they would listen to me. See, and I'm going to tell you something about my parents, and I'm not knocking my parents, or judging my parents, or I'm putting any expectations of my parents at all, because expectations for me with them is a preset resentment. If I think they'll be, ever be different than who they are. But I'm going to tell you, neither of my parents would call me and say, and when I was a kid, they wouldn't even say this. How's your day, Frank? How's football going? How's hockey going? Whatever sport I get scrounged up enough to go play myself. How the hell is school? How's that girl you like? And they just don't. They just never did. It's not my parents' parenting style. So when these guys would ask me this, and someone saying, Frank, how's your day? How's your life? Even though they're just asking me about seeing black people. I love that. I'm already becoming a broken human being. Why am I broken? I'm becoming an egomaniac with no self-esteem, right? I'm not much, but I'm all I think about, right? That's how I think. I have to survive on my own, and I know this. So now I'm like, he's gonna take me to a concert, and while we're at this concert, we're gonna go beat up all these people inside the concert hall. And there's a dance bit going on, and then we're gonna go in, and now all these other scanners are showing up, and I don't know them. My cousin knows them, but I don't know them. So my cousin doesn't want them to mistakenly beat me up because I got hair on my head. And they don't know me, so I might be one of their victims, right? But they were only looking for guys with mullets. That's what time of the year is in the 89s, and mullets is coming out. So it's a pretty good cause. You know, there you go. So <laughs> that was one of the most embarrassing white haircuts we've ever had. And it lasted like, I still see people with it now. Business on top, party in the back. So they bring me into the club, and the bigger skin that sees that I don't know one of these guys, so he puts me on his shoulders. And he goes into this dance pit, and he's punching and kicking, and he grabs this guy by the moment, and he goes, kick him, Frank, kick him. Now I'm on this guy's shoulders, right? So I'm trying to kick that in the pit, and I'm not really, because this farm boy guy's arms are longer than my legs, so I'm not really connecting, but I'm trying to do it anyway. You know, I'm just trying to have fun. I mean, I'm trying to be part of. Now just kick us out. Then they kicked all the rest of the skin out all night long. But it wasn't like one big kick out, it was like gradually kicking one. Because all they were in there doing was fighting. What happened was so poignant in my life at this time was the end of the night happens, all the nightclub gets fed out. There's a guy standing over there that we were trying to kick. And that big skin dude says, Come on, Frank, let's go say something to this guy. And I'm like, sure, okay. We go over and he says, Yo, buddy, you got something to say to us now? And this mullet guy was like, no, I never had anything to say from the get-go. And I seen it, and I love it. Fear. Now, he really doesn't fear me. I come up to the beach kid, I'm standing next to him. You know what I mean? But I seen that fear, yet fear of us. And I love that. That's because I'm broken. And to be honest with myself and to be honest with you, why do I love that fear so much? Because up until that point in my life, I fear everything. I fear my home, I fear my parents, I fear my school, I fear if I'm going to have enough food, sorry, food to eat today. I fear that. I might not have enough food to eat today. Now somebody fears me. That is on. They take me back to my cousin's house that night. That bigger skin I can go and he slapped me right in my head. He says, when are you going to shave all this crap off your head? I'm going to be able to protect you all the time. 
looked around. That was a pretty cool incident. I saw shit right now if I could. So they turned to my cousin. Now I'm 14. Yeah, I'm just turned 14. He's going to be 16. So he's older and he's responsible for me. So he says to them, if Frank wants to shave it, we can shave it. So they all take me out back and they shave my head. Every guy who was there at night took one row of the clippers. That's my initiation in. I didn't go shoot nobody, kill nobody, none of that stuff here in movies. Maybe some of the groups do that. We didn't do that. At this time, Pennsylvania has this movement going. It's kind of small, but it's growing. And I'm just starting to join. Real quickly, Pennsylvania is becoming the leading hate state in America. In the early 90s, Pennsylvania was the leading hate state in America. Why is that? Because you have Pittsburgh on one side, Philadelphia on the other. In the middle is West Virginia. <laughs> and, what, and, I, and I mean that because it's, you know, sticks and, and, and Amish farms. And what do these people see? Nothing but Philadelphia and Pittsburgh news. And that scares them. Shooting in West Philly. Shooting on the hill in Pittsburgh. Oh, that's why I don't want that coming. That's why. That's why right now one of the United States of America is Michigan. Michigan. Because above Highway 90, or 94, whatever, I think there's a split. And below that highway is Detroit, Ann Arbor, the Grand Rapids. All the people above that are all farmers who see the news from down in areas and say, we don't want that up here. And that's a legitimate concern. But they don't have the right cause. So as I get into this, I remember they started teaching me some stuff about like the Federal Reserve, right? They teach me about the Jews. Now I get the black white thing, fighting with these kids. The white Puerto Rican thing, I got that. I'm fighting with these kids too. I play them in sports and I just fight with them. I don't know anything about the Jews. But what I have heard people say, and people that I respect and know, I'm talking about uncles, you know, older men, people I respect in life. Where I hear them say in the business deal, don't Jew me. I never got that when I was a kid. What does that mean? I did How do you start a Jewish parade? You're all coming down the street. I thought the dumbest joke would text at me. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know. I had no idea what that meant. Well, these guys are talking about the Federal Reserve is secretly run by Israel and the Jews. Now, for one, I'm 14 years old and you're talking about the Federal Reserve. I'm 39 right now. I still don't know the Federal Reserve. You know, there's always bad news, you know, but they're saying it's still for the Jews. Wow, okay. And it started to unlock what the adults knew in my life. Even if I respected them adults, I know that people have left me to fend for myself. I want to know what they know. I want to be able to debate with them. I want to be able to go down there and show them just as smart as they are. So I'm gathering all this information. Come back to Philly, I start recruiting down the South Philly, Southwest, Northeast, recruiting, and we get this huge number of students. And I'm one of the causes of it. Legitimate. I'm not choked my arm because of me, but I was one of the main people that was helping this thing grow. So I started going up to the Bible studies. Now I want to let you know in Pennsylvania there's no drugs allowed in our movement. We were not allowed to do any drugs. And a lot of us were religious. So we go to these Bible studies and like, I don't know, like, you know, Pennsylvania, you go out to the woods and wear these army tents. And you have these guys come up and start preaching the Bible to Grant, I'm born and raised Irish Catholic. You have to be Irish Catholic to live in my neighborhood. You have to make your sacraments, or you're not part of the neighborhood, right? I mean, that's how it goes. You've got to go to catechism. I go to this Bible study, and this pastor would stand above me, 
and you say, first story, Adam and Eve, we don't know the story, God's going to eat the fruit, she does it anyway, and then she tricks a dude into it, because she's a chick, and we're all in trouble, right? That's the story, you know, right? Thank you, Eve. They say, that's not what happened. This is a minister telling me, that's not what happened. What happened was, this serpent man comes to Eve, and he tricks her, and she got a piece of fruit. Of course she got a piece of fruit, it's a garden. She, they had that forbidden fruit. He had the forbidden fruit with her. She's naked, she's pure, she's never committed that sin. And he impregnates her with Cain. Cain later on kills Abel, Adam and real son, but she's now tricked at home into thinking that both children are hers. It's like the Mori Povich episode. And Cain, in the story, is the original evil Jew on the planet. Just to back this up, You'll hear this a lot on a lot of the websites and stuff in these groups. Hopefully you go there for research and no other. They always say the Jews are the seed of Satan. That's where they get it from. That's the story. So now again, being born and raised Irish, I think we do on my sacraments. Father Wassel and Sister Mary Agnes never told me this story out of the Bible. You know what I mean? Like I question things my whole life with the Bible. I mean, I, that's okay. You know, I, even when I was a little kid, I never, the art story never worked for me. I'm sorry, and then I'm, it's just never, it's my own person. They're still finding apes in the Amazon. How do you, how do you find them? You know, like that type of stuff, right? But when they were telling me these stories, I'd question I would say to these guys, now we're holding guns out of Bible studies. And then we'd go up and I would say, how come I never heard that story before? And he'd say, well, what religion? So, raised Catholic. It's oh, a Jew worshiping religion, that's why. God, has chosen you, friend, to know the truth now. You are an angel from God. Your job is to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is Sodom and Gomorrah. So when I'm this kid on welfare from South Philly, you're telling me God wants me on his team. And I can be violent and do anything I want to my enemy because that's what God's purpose is for me. I love it. I love it. I'm in. I'm broken. I'm broken. This makes me feel good. I wouldn't do it if it didn't. This controls my life. <laughs> I'm going to show you a clip in a second here, TV show. So I become known as like one of the smarter people in the group. Don't know how. Don't know why. Just do it. So we're going to run this clip of me on a TV show with. Dan Rather is one of those guys, ABC News, and it's with this little girl. It's a famous clip because this little girl tries to take me on. Can we run that clip real quick? Can we see that? Or is it going to run? Okay. Crammed a lot into this program before we started, and, and we haven't had room for everything even we wanted to do, but we're not finished yet. But one young lady has been fudging me like nobody's business since the beginning of this program, haven't you? And why are you fudging me? Why? Why? You want to go and talk to them? Do you yep. take other kinds of people that aren't like kids? Look at that guy. Will you go and take this microphone over? She's been saying this to me at every... Go on over and talk to them beside me. You've been saying this to me at every commercial. You think you're scared just because of other people? Or not because they're just different? No, I don't, I ain't scared, I ain't nothing, I ain't afraid of anybody else, I'm just, I just, I'm so proud of my race, and I would, like I said, I would live or die for my race if anything ever came down to it, and I would, 
But why do you have that kind of writing on your head? Because it's just, I'm just proud of, I'm from Philadelphia, so I haven't made a Philly in my head. Philly, come on back here. There you go. That's good. You don't think it's okay for him to have writing on his Still head? Still representing Philly. Still representing Philly, even back then. I'm 15 years old. I'm Fifteen. You can't see, but I got big black and blues all over my head. I got in jump two nights before by these like, communist group. You know, that's who we fought with, right? Wing. Like, we're right wing, they were left wing. So as I was saying, violence is a major part of my mind. I got out of boys from the mood for my violence, my, my violence and my, for my preaching. That was good. In that clip real quick, I want to get done this real quick on that. So in that show, they tricked me to come on that show. They told me I was going to go on a debate with experts, and I was like, yeah, all right, and I went up and it was a trick. It was like a little kid's show. And then the part of one part of this thing, I wish I could find the whole clip, the whole show, this black guy comes out and he's singing to me, and this is like his big break. He's got it. He's coming out and he's singing a song about all the crayons. So I have all the crayons in the back, in the back. And I'm like, oh, jeez. And he keeps coming towards me. The whole show is generated towards me, you know, to try and cheat. Comes over and he comes to put his hand on my back as he's singing, his hand is shaking so bad as he goes to touch me. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. What am I meant to do? Gotta put his hand on my back. Love all the crayons in the box. You know? <laughs> this woman comes out, she has a brown eyed, blue eyed theory. It's very, she's kind of famous for us. She comes out, and I don't know her then, but I've heard her. She comes out, she's screaming at me on the show. How dare you say that the blue eye is a masturbation, the brown eye people are the first people here. You know, how could you think you're a masturbation? You aren't even the first people on this planet. Brown eye people out of Africa. How could you say that? What do you think of that? Everyone thinks she's got me. She's gonna watch out this scientific stuff on me. So everyone's like waiting for my response and they I'm gonna say, oh no. I look down. I'm already so mad I'm on the show. I look up at her and go, man. I'm sorry, but it never describes Adam and the eyes in the Bible. And the whole show was like, oh my God, where are you? What the heck is this guy going to say next? You know? They had no idea that that guy in the scene was going to bust out some biblical stuff on him. Right? They were like, oh my God. So they left me alone the rest of the show. They had no idea what was going to happen on that. Violence. I'm in and out of duty. Philly duty. Then I go on the run. I'm living in the safe house system. I live all over the country. And I was always thinking because I was the made in Philly guy. And the movie loved me. He said, Brown I Blue Eyes. He said, Like, I was smart. Make my way out to Springfield, Illinois, where I'm running this chapter. I have all these warrants for my arrest. I had a warrant for my arrest in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, South Jersey, and one out of Delaware, too. I was a tri state kind of guy. They dropped on my warrants because I got in trouble out in Illinois. And they dropped on my warrant because no one wanted to actually write a juvenile. So they just said, I forget about it. Now I go crazy. Then warrants about a year kept me under control. So I get my own cable access television show, I start recruiting. I start recruiting these people at the school. And right in the middle of Springfield, Illinois, which is the home of Abraham Lincoln, is the home of the NAACP, founding place in the NAACP, but they had a really big bank problem at the time. And I'm recruiting all these white kids out of the school. And I have to tell you this story because it's very, it goes with today. It goes like this. I'm recruiting all these kids and a lot of them are like skater punk rock kids at this major high school in Springfield, Illinois. And the jocks are treasured there. The basketball and football team are just treasured. Well, they pick on the skater kids all the time. I'm starting to recruit them. I go hang out with them. One day, one of the jocks threw a deep battery at the kids. I said, hold on, I'll be right back. Now, by that time, I had a big swastika on my neck. I started tattooing my head. I still have my tattoo on my head. 
But I'm flustered. So I walked over to where all these jocks are in the small. Right out of the So I walk up to the biggest jock. You know, it's exactly how it goes. This big jock puts up his hands to square up with me. He's a big boy. All right, I'm already this far. You know. Both have our hands up and ready to go. And he goes, what do you want? I said, go through the battery. And he goes, what? I said, go through the battery. He goes, John did. John, why'd you throw the battery, John? Right, right in there. Right? <laughs> Recruiting all these kids. Egomaniac, no self-esteem. I'm homicidal or suicidal. That day I was both. That whole time period I had both. I kidnapped the kid because I think he disrespected me on Christmas. Christmas Eve, I kidnapped him. And I got to prison. <laughs> I have to tell the story about that. So, you always hear the story, where do you find God at? You find him in the county jail. That's where it most finds him. And I'm reading a bunch of religious books, both the Mormons, I read the Bible, I'm reading the Bible again all by myself, I read parts of the Quran in there. I mean, the whole because I'm a young kid, I was getting this kid in prison. And I would pray to God like this, I'd be like, yo, God, if you're a real dude, I want you to kill all the guards, knock down the wall, and open my door right now. If you're really gonna do that, come on, God, do it. Oh, you're so fake. I'm waiting for a girl to click my door. Oh, you're so fake, God. You have to read this one part of my fasting. So if you fast, God will reveal himself to you. But you can't write your books, it's like writing on a street corner. So I start going this fast. Well, the prison thinks I'm on a hunger strike. So I don't tell them, because you can't write your books, right? So I can't tell them why I'm not eating, so anything I'm gonna harm myself. Finally, the warden comes closing out of my cell on a Sunday. I already planned on eating on Monday because I was going to do a three-day fast, so God, that would be my boy. <laughs> warden pulls me out and says, Mr. Nick, you got to, are you going to eat tomorrow or what? And I was like, mm. Again, I know I'm already going to eat Monday morning. I already made that deal with God. So he said, well, why aren't you eating? I said, I can't tell you. But be prepared. There's some stuff going down tomorrow. I'm going home. You know what I mean? I was like, so you better say goodbye. All the guards better go home and say goodbye. There's some stuff going to happen tomorrow. Next day, I ate the general population. I was in the hole for four months until then. Now, this might sound crazy, and everyone has these crazy guy stories. You know, like, this is what God revealed himself, just like it said it would. He didn't give me what I wanted, he gave me what I needed. See, I started talking to myself in that hole. I did. I was talking to myself. I was losing things and crazy time. When I get up to state prison, I start playing football. I'm a, one of the lead guys in the area group in my prison because I'm very active on the outside. I had my own cable access show. I was like a little celebrity. People are like, oh, we're so glad you're here. We're really in the prison. Thanks. I say that. But when you play sports with the Aryans and a lot of the bikers who I was cool with, they can fix your transition to your boat. They don't know how to trail football. They don't know how to dribble basketball. Always double dribble. I'm like, that's double dribble. I know how to play that game. A couple of the black kids I kind of knew coming up through the system, because we were the youngest kids, Jimmy G, Kenny Jello, Tony, and they played football. I started playing football. First job they gave me, they bought returns. They knew that no one was going to block me. I get my head ripped off my first shift, and they never seen how fast the white boy was. And when I'm scared, <laughs> no bicep. 
So I started to have empathy there. I had a daughter while I was in prison. I didn't even tell my area friends. I always told G and Del. Because it got me. G looks at me and says, What does she look like? That's all I want someone to ask I get released from prison and I'm kind of coming around to something. I'm still, this is why I have my name out because it's my job, it's God's job for me. And I hate Jews. Why hate Jews? I come back to Philadelphia. And I can't find a job because we have a big swastika on your neck and a tattoo made of Philly in your head and a skinhead on your knuckles. And I get ready to kidnap me at 17. As an adult, these ain't good people skills. <laughs> Management positions don't open up to them. So, Joe Scott gives me a job working in the antique business. He has me work one weekend for him. And he hired me full time. And this man named Keith, he still has stores here in Cherry Hill, Keith's antiques. And I used to always think I was dumb, no matter how much I put up that bravado, ego made at me, so to speak. I really secretly think I'm dumb. And I would say stuff all the time. If you're kids, you today, kids, you know, like, you know, remind me of that mom and dad. Oh, that's so stupid. I'm so dumb. I used to say that. And I didn't say, you know, this kid, you got a little trauma. I'm so fat. So I would say, oh my God, I'm trying to get on that line. Do that. <laughs> I didn't say I was dumb because I didn't think I was. I really thought I was. And so Keith one day gripped me up and said, stop saying you're stupid, you idiot. <laughs> and he was just this great man. And he was. He had to write a story and say, well, what are you doing, man? He fit the story. He said, ugh, you pay. My manager. So I started to get out of this movement. I got my first job out of the Philadelphia Flyers, coaching Army for Hockey. Real quick, I want to go over a couple of things and then we'll look at this Things that I had to learn. You man. Humility and humility is such a huge part of my life today. And I've been out of the movement almost 20 years. I coach hockey teams to national championships. Um, Seven coach, but I'll take the credit on the stage. <laughs> and that's such a great thing for a team. Having, you know. Because what is that? When I can say my humility is that I don't think less of myself, but I think about myself. Bad 
I live in the crack house. Now, I don't smoke crack, see? And all addicts can do this. And a lot of people do this. We always look down at the other guy in the gutter, you know? Oh, those black guys. So I go with these crackheads, and I'm like, look at them junkies, crackheads. You know, I didn't even use opiates. But one day they called me downstairs and they had an intervention on me. Active smoking crackheads had an intervention on me. <laughs> Off the Eagleville, I went again. Third time in Eagleville. Alright. Tell you these two, two things and uh, where do I have to change in my life and how do I help people change and what do I do when I have to remember who the hard guys are. Growing up around my dad's bar, my dad had a roofing bar, a roofer bar in Southwest Hill. So it's all roofers. They're rough. On rainy days, on a Tuesday, that place is hard. You know what I mean? So we all have to get off the roof, they all come to the bar. Rough crowd. And there was guys who were hitting out of prison, I was just playing the hardest guys. I was like, in jail. He did this in jail. What do you want this? He did this, that's why he's in jail. Like, they thought that was so hard. And then there was guys that came around and get their kids who were my friends, who their dads still were part of their lives, or did something. And I thought, this is they don't know prison stories. They're always asking me about how school going. Come on now. I'm starting to look up to other men, and I still just say have to look up to men and figure out how to be a dad, how to figure out this way of how to write my sales. And how to figure out that the hard guys were the dads doing stuff with their kids, not the guys sitting in the bar and looking Kid visiting, listening and talking to guys. It's not hard, it's a coward way. I told you that if you come across a car on fire, baby, of course you save the baby. If any of you didn't say that, we all save the baby. Then there's the mass murder or hitler guy in the car. You save him. Yes. Then there's the hitler baby before he does all the bad things. You save him. Yes, you save him. Because that is your job as a human being. Not to judge in the moment. It's I'm going to save someone from fire. I'm going to do that because that's my job. And that's a hard decision when I get it. But that's our job. Last thing I'm going to do, we got to do it. to ask questions later on and talk to me, read my book, answer all the questions. Elephants are the greatest majestic animal on this earth, other than us. They're really the only other animal that really has empathy. They still, they, they visit their bed. I mean, elephants are the most majestic, awesome animals we have on this planet. And we're killing them. One every 15 minutes is killed. So if you, side note, side message, buy anything with ivory, you're a jerk. Don't buy anything with ivory anymore. Seriously, just stop. Like, we have to stop that mark. But anyway. So they took all these baby elephants in Africa one time. It's a true story. They brought all these baby elephants together, they were all from different herds, and they said, well, let them raise up together and they'll be kumbaya elephants, right? They're all different herds, but they'll all get along. So they came up as babies together. So they're like, oh, cool. So they do this with 200 elephants, babies. You know, the older ones, especially the male elephants, when they got into their teenage years, three or four, I don't know, not elephants, but when they were elephants and were teenagers, they started going crazy. They were killing things, like hippos and rhinos, like they were, they care less about them. They were doing all this strange stuff. So they started shooting these big elephants, babies, or teenage elephants were shooting. It was crazy, they were like, the cabbage was doing something in the water. 
and just over after you and said, no, you need to go back to the old herd to get to the big old elephant and bring them in here to show them how to act like elephants. They don't know how to act. And that is a hard job. No. It's a big old elephant. When I see someone say a racist joke, I step on point with them. Why do you say that? If you say something for my kids like that, it's on. But it's our job is to be a little relevant on these planets. I know I told you I don't believe the boat story and the thought of this But I believe that this earth is our ark. See, because if the story was true that everything on the ark, the lions and the hyenas had to get along. She didn't want to get off the ark. There's nowhere to go. We need to start thinking of this rock planet as our ark. And I need to start getting along with my neighbor. I need to start understanding what's going on in Palestine and in Israel. I need to settle because I have empathy and compassion for those other people. And I think that my world only revolves around one of these people like me. So I'm truly honored to be here again. I love this place. This is such a cool church. I've been struggling with my faith lately. I really have not been this for stage. I'm going to share the last quote. I went to a bunch of spiritual leaders two weeks ago. There's a flesh me. Some of the only spiritual leaders in my community, I mean, some rabbi, what he thinks of my spirituality, I don't think I'm losing it. And it's there down with my Christian conservative friends. I love them, though. I have compassion and empathy for But I go to a guy who's just a former drunk, and I said, dude, I'm having trouble with my faith. Oh, hold on. Close this out of a book in two seconds. And I'm thinking, I want to damage my best short thing, and he wouldn't even know I'm not He only knows me inside and out because he's just like me. Oh, he's other people answer my question. Two seconds. He says this will be way out of the world. True ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is a ground desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Humble, so I can say teachable. I say humble, I say teachable. So anyway, I'm truly grateful to be here. I always go over on time. Frank Mink. So we're talking about how in the world, like we can choose and how change can come. How change can shift our lives and, and, and move us in different directions and do different things for us and how significant that change can actually be. So our final three little words here to share with you folks and then we're gonna have a prayer and we're gonna close the day of love. Three quick thoughts. If you look up here, one of the most significant prayers I think that the Bible has to offer us is it's a prayer of oneness. It's a prayer where Christ asks, you know, may we all be one. May all of them be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And that's speaking to that oneness that we can share in that world that we're called to create. As the new church holds it in this beautiful way, love for our neighbors is all people as our family and friends. And that can continue to bump out. And understand this, folks, that is not a nostalgic love. That is not just warm fuzzies. That is love that actually calls 
us sacrificially to give into this world. The world's so filled with a great deal of fear. And as Frank said, you know, if, if we feed on fear, all we're left with is this kind of this world of either we're trying to, to sort of cower from fear or we're trying to make sure someone else is afraid of us. Neither of which works too terribly well. So let's think about this world this week. world we're not afraid. world we're willing to take the steps and stands that we need to. world we're willing to exercise the definition of courageous. Courageous being fear that is said as prayers. Let's live into that world. Celebrate this morning with the kingdom. But ask Frank down come out and join me in prayer for you. Another round of applause for Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for bringing us here together today. Lord, allow us to find ways to stand, to stand for peace, not violence. And Lord, allow us to stand sacrificially on the other side of you, on the side of love. Allow us, Lord, to honor the memory of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, a life well lived. Legacy of love that we can still live into in this time. In your silent prayers this morning with our community weekend. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast at www.newchurchlive.tv. See you next week.